I remember years ago, I think it was late August. I was in a small boat on a lake in the early morning, just as the sun was rising. The air had a chill to it. It felt like fall was moments away. If you looked across the water, you could see a light mist hovering over the lake, as if it were resting before the day would start and whisk it away. The water met the mountain base, and the mountains met the sky as the sun was peering over the rigid rock formations. So calm. So peaceful. Not a break in the water. It looked like glass. So many different aspects of raw nature coming together to create an image so amazing. It could only be remembered in my mind as a beautiful living painting. The person I was with lowered a shoulder and turned his head, admiring the sheer beauty of this moment. He looked around, doing a full 360 degree survey of what was happening. Stunning beauty and chaos all forming in one special instant. Looking at the horizon, he said, if that doesn't make you believe in God, nothing will. In that moment, not knowing if I had faith or belief in a God that creates moments like these, I wondered, does seeing this actually prove God's existence? Where is the rationale in a comment like that? Stunning, yes, but how would this make me believe or show proof that God is real? As time went on, I referenced the memory often, contemplating the very words he said as we witnessed nature at its finest. What would it take for me to believe in God? Nothing felt concrete. Nothing felt reasonable. Rather than remembering the harmony of that moment like a beautiful painting in real life, I remember my question. Is belief in God rational? You know, I never met the, uh, I've never met the woman in that video, but I have spent time with literally uh, hundreds of different people who have questions uh, like that woman has. Is faith in God rational? Is it reasonable to believe uh, that God exists? And, and I'm excited because for the next four weeks, we're going to be asking questions like that, questions that we're sometimes afraid to ask, uh, that we don't normally ask in church, or perhaps at least in the church that you may have grown up in. Uh, you may not have felt free to ask those questions, but, but I and I think all of us here who are at Renaissance firmly believe we have to be able to ask those questions. We have to be able to explore those issues. We have to be able to express our doubts and consider, are the things that we've been taught growing up or are the things that we sing about week to week and are the things that we read about in the Bible true? Are they really true? And is it reasonable? Is it rational 
to believe them? Or in some sense, are we just kind of accepting it because it's part of uh, maybe the culture in which we grew up, maybe because it's what our parents taught us? And so I'm excited that we've got the opportunity to do this over the next several weeks, and I hope that you'll come back each week. Actually, I was thinking about this. I would love to have a conversation with any of you who would be interested in doing that. So grab me after the service. If you've got questions beyond what we're talking about, let me know. I'd love to hang out with you. I actually thought about maybe doing this whole series interactively, but I figured it'd get kind of messy with, a, you know, 100, 150, 200 people here uh, every Sunday morning. But in any case, I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to it. And it reminds me of, of a conversation of interaction that I had with a student named Brian when I was a, a chaplain at Princeton. I had the privilege of, of spending hours and hours with different students who would ask all sorts of different questions. And I met Brian my first year as a chaplain at Princeton. I was leading a Bible study group uh, for freshmen, and Brian had started uh, coming to this group. Brian was one of those guys who had clearly come from some sort of a Christian background. Uh, he knew the Bible pretty well. He had a lot of answers, or so it seemed, to the different questions and different things uh, that we were discussing. But there was something that I, I couldn't put my finger on but there was something that was wrong, something that wasn't quite right uh, in, in terms of, of Brian's faith. He asked a lot of questions, and I didn't have any problem with him asking these questions, but every once in a while, and it seemed actually increasingly, his questions had a little bit of an edge to them. It was kind of like he had this chip on his shoulder, and I couldn't figure out if he was trying to prove that uh, what he'd been taught as a kid, that that, that was wrong, or whether he was trying to explore and really kind of dig deeper and move beyond the pat answers. But I knew that there was something going on there. And one day, two, three months after we had started to get to know each other, he was over at my house and we were talking through a, a variety of things. And then all of a sudden he got kind of quiet. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Clay, I don't know if my faith is my faith or if it's my parents' faith. I don't know if the things I believe are things that I believe because I really believe them, or do I believe them because it's what I grew up with, it's because it's what my parents taught me, it's because it's what I heard in church week in and week out. And essentially what Brian was saying is he comes to Princeton and he's having this crisis of faith, and he's asking himself the fundamental questions. Is God really there? Is belief in God rational? Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Do I really need to put my faith in Him in order to have a, a, a right relationship with God? And he's discouraged at this point because he's having this crisis of faith. But from my perspective, this was super encouraging, not just because it answered the question as to what was going on with Brian, why was he asking all these questions, and, and not just because it gave me uh, an opportunity to talk with him, but most importantly, because Brian really wanted to own his faith. He didn't want just pat answers to the questions. He didn't want to just parrot the things that he had been told in Sunday school. He really wanted to own his faith, and that's why I was there at Princeton to help students 
to, to get to know God and to own their faith. And so I was really excited, especially uh, this first year, that I had met a student who really wanted to dig in and understand these sorts of things. And like Brian, we all have questions. I don't care what background you grew up with. All of us have questions about God. All of us have questions about our faith or our lack thereof. And those are questions that we need to ask, and they're questions that we need to explore. And sometimes those questions arrive, uh, arise from intellectual challenges to our faith. Someone says to you, you know, the Bible is not reliable, and they start listing all the reasons why maybe they think that it's not reliable. Or they say, they claim that there's a conflict, an, an irreconcilable conflict between science and faith. And so they say, if you're an intelligent thinking person who believes in the scientific method, you can't believe in God. And sometimes those sorts of challenges can, can, can really uh, cause us to question our faith. And then there's other times, like 9-11 or the death of a loved one. Something happens, and we begin to question, is God really there? And if He is, is He really good? And if He's good, is He really capable? Is He really competent? Is He able to help us in our time of need? Because when whatever it is happened, it didn't feel like God was there. And we begin to question the things that we believe. And, and we don't have time over the next four weeks to cover every question that we might have, but we've picked out four different questions that we want to cover, four different common questions that people ask over and over and over again. This week, we're going to be looking at the question, is faith in God rational? Is it reasonable to believe that God exists? Next week, we're going to be asking the question, why do bad things happen to good, good people? Why is there evil in the world? Why do innocent people suffer? The following week, we're going to be asking the question, are all religions the same? Or we could flip it around and say, what's so unique? What's so different about Christianity? Does it really matter if I believe in what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? And then the final week, we're asking the question, isn't Christianity essentially just a straitjacket? Isn't it just a bunch of rules and regulations, a bunch of do's and don'ts? If I do the right things, then God's happy with me. And if I don't do the right things, then God is going to be really angry with me and condemn me to hell. Is that really what Christianity is all about at its essence? And so wherever you are in your spiritual journey, if you're just starting out, if you're just beginning to ask questions like these, if you've never been to church, you've come to the right place, and I'm excited that you're here, and I hope that you'll come back and you'll join us as we're exploring these things. Or if you've been a follower of Jesus for your entire life, you got to admit that from time to time, we all have these questions, and so I'm excited about the opportunity that we have to explore them. So this week, we're asking the question, is faith in God rational? Is it reasonable to believe that God exists? And that's what the woman in the video was asking. There's an evolutionary biologist uh, named Richard Dawkins. He's an adamant atheist, and he's written extensively as to why he believes that faith in God is completely unreasonable and completely irrational. He puts it this way. Dawkins says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of or perhaps because of the lack of of evidence. And as I was reading this quote this week, I was reminded of a, of a passage in uh, Alice 
in Wonderland, uh, where the Red Queen says something pretty, uh, pretty funny here. She, Alice says, one can't believe impossible things. The Red Queen responds, and she says, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. And I feel like at times, somebody like Dawkins, he would say to us, who are people of faith, who believe what God says, he'd say, you're like the Red Queen. You're believing six impossible things for breakf before breakfast simply because you're practiced at it. And you know, if Dawkins... If, if Dawkins' definition of faith, that faith is belief in spite of or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence, if that were true, Dawkins would be absolutely correct that faith is irrational. But the problem for Dawkins is that's not what faith is. That's not how most people define faith. One dictionary defines faith as strong belief or trust in someone or something. Faith isn't believing without any evidence. There's nothing in that definition that says that there's no evidence. It's believing, faith is believing something without absolute proof. Faith isn't believing in spite of the evidence. It's believing because of the evidence, but faith is humble enough to say, I don't have all the possible evidence, and yet I believe. And that's something that we do every day. A lot of you woke up this morning. You went to the refrigerator. You pulled out some food. You ate your breakfast. You were exercising faith. How did you know for sure that you weren't going to get sick from that food? How do you know for sure that it didn't spoil? We've all eaten spoiled food. You came here this morning. Maybe you grabbed a bagel or a cup of coffee. How do you know for sure that it was absolutely safe to eat that bagel and cup of coffee? You had reasonable reason to believe that it was safe, but ultimately you were exercising faith when you ate your breakfast or bagel or, or drank a cup of coffee. You exercised faith when you walked up the stairs this morning. How did you know for sure that those stairs could hold you and all the other people who were on them? You didn't, but it was reasonable to believe that, and we exercise faith like that every day. We exercise faith in our financial system every day. And those of you who work in that industry know that it's a whole lot more fragile than we might like to think that it is. And yet, we exercise faith in the banking system every day. We invest in the different markets. We exercise faith because we believe it's reasonable to do so, not because we have absolute proof. We all exercise faith, and most of the time, our faith is rational, and, and the word rational can be defined as something that's based on or in accordance with reason or logic. Faith is based on or in accordance with reason or logic. We believe that something is true because we have good reason to believe it. We don't have absolute proof, but just good reason. When you drive on the road, you have good reason to believe that the other drivers are not going to run into you unless you're riding on the Garden State Parkway and then all bets are off. Maybe that kind of faith is irrational. But for the most part, when we're driving, our faith in the other drivers is reasonable. It's rational, but 
It's nevertheless, it's faith. Now, to be fair, Dawkins and others could argue that exercising faith is reasonable and rational as long as it's not faith in God. Other kinds of faith, driving, eating food, financial markets, staircases, the air we breathe, whatever it is, those kinds of faith are reasonable, they're rational. But faith in God, some people would argue, is not reasonable and it's not rational. And there are all sorts of different, what I would call arguments for the existence of God. They're not proofs for God's existence. I don't actually believe that we can prove that God exists, but I think we can demonstrate that it's reasonable to believe that God exists. In fact, I think we can demonstrate that it is at least as reasonable to believe that God exists as it is to believe that he doesn't exist. For example, one of the best arguments for the existence of God is called the argument from design. And the idea with the argument of design is that when we look at the universe, we see an orderliness to it that is best explained as having arisen from the mind of an intelligent agent. Some intelligent agent brought order to this universe, and that intelligent agent is, by faith, believed to be God. Albert Einstein puts it this way. He said, everyone who's seriously interested in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man. Was Albert Einstein a, a Bible-believing Christian? No. He was a world-class scientist who looked at the universe around him and said, you can't seriously, as a scientist, look at the universe around you and not believe that there is some sort of superior intelligence that's behind the orderliness of that universe. Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project, and several years ago, President Obama appointed him to be the director of the National Institutes of Health. Francis Collins is an extremely devout Christian with a very strong faith in God. And as a world-class scientist, Francis Collins firmly believes that from a scientific perspective, it is most reasonable to believe that the order that he sees in the universe, and especially in the human body, which is, which is his area of, of scientific expertise, that the order that he sees in the world around him is best explained by the existence of God. And now, we can disagree if we want with Einstein, and we can disagree if we want with Francis Collins, but we can't reasonably say that those guys are idiots, that they're irrational, that they're not thinking, that they're being unreasonable. Does their faith prove that God exists? No. But their arguments for the existence of God are reasonable and they're rational. So what they're saying to us is that it is reasonable, it's rational to believe that God exists. Another approach, another argument, again, not proof, but another argument for the existence of God is called the argument for morality. Immanuel Kant, secular philosopher, said that all moral thought Re relies on, necessitates the existence of God. If we're going to have a discussion about morality, 
we can't have, from Kant's perspective, a rational discussion about morality without the assumption, without the belief, without the faith that God exists. C.S. Lewis, British writer, philosopher, theologian, he says that the existence of objective moral truths, and he says there are objective moral truths. The existence of objective moral truths requires a supernatural explanation. He says that naturalism, the idea that everything has just origin, uh, arisen by completely random natural causes, naturalism and atheism can't lead can't explain the existence of objective morality. And in fact, he says that even naturalists and atheists act as if objective morality exists. Even people like Richard Dawkins and other adamant atheists act and live as if objective morality exists. And so from C.S. Lewis's perspective, naturalism and atheism, the idea that God does not exist is internally inconsistent and it's rationally untenable. So you've got C.S. Lewis arguing that it is more reasonable and it is more rational to believe that God exists than that God doesn't exist. And again, you may not be convinced by Immanuel Kant. You may not be convinced by C.S. Lewis that God exists. But we can't say that Albert Einstein, Francis Collins, Immanuel Kant, C.S. Lewis, we can't say that these men were unreasonable, unthinking, or irrational when they say it's reasonable and rational to believe that God exists. Jesus said some very similar things. Jesus said he doesn't want us to, as his followers, to throw away our minds, to stop thinking, to have what a lot of people refer to as blind faith. Jesus never encouraged people to have blind faith. It was one day when some of the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus and they were trying to challenge him, they're trying to question him, they're trying to trip him up, and they said to Jesus, what's the first and greatest, what's the most important commandment? Jesus replies, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I can't prove that God exists, but we can see that it's reasonable, that it's rational, that intelligent, thinking people, people who use their minds can believe that God exists. The Bible describes faith in this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about, we do, but about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do, what we do not see. Just because we can't see God doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. It's a foundation of science there. There's so many things in the world that we can't see, but we believe exists. So just because we can't see God, just because we can't touch him, doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. We may not be able to prove that he exists, but we've got good reason to believe that he exists, and that is rational faith. There was a, a Near the end of, or actually after, just after Jesus had died and had risen, there was an encounter that Jesus had 
with some of his disciples. And see, when Jesus died on the cross, his disciples, his followers, the people who had faith in him, their faith was shaken because they had expected that Jesus was their Messiah. They expected that he was their king. They expected that he was going to be the one who was going to lead them out of, uh, from under the authority and domination of Rome. And yet he had died on a Roman cross as a criminal. And so their faith in him was shaken, and they're asking themselves, is it really true? Did, is Jesus really who he claimed to be? And they weren't sure, and so their faith was shaken. But shortly after he rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his followers, and they believed, and they said, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he's done what he's claimed to have done because I saw him die on that cross and I saw him rise again from the dead. And so their faith was, was strengthened. But one of them, a man named Thomas, wasn't there when Jesus appeared to some of the other disciples. And, and the gospel writer John, who was Jesus' best earthly friend when he was on earth, writes this about an interaction that Jesus and Thomas had uh, a week or so later. John writes, he says, now Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, who was one of the 12, meaning one of the 12 disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You say Jesus rose from the dead, that's not good enough for me. I need to see him with my own eyes. I need to touch him with my own hands. I need to experience him with my physical senses or I'm not going to believe in him. In some sense, Thomas is one of the first skeptics of who Jesus really was and of the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And Thomas is saying, I want irrefutable proof or I will not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. So a week or so later, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And what's interesting, the doors were locked. Why are the doors locked? The disciples are still somewhat afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. Yes, they'd seen that Jesus had risen from the dead, and yes, their, their faith was strengthened, but there was still some doubt, there were still some questions, because ultimately, if they actually fully, completely, totally believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, why would they be afraid of the Jewish religious leaders? So there was still some doubt, still some question going on in their mind. Their faith still took time to develop, and the same thing is true with us. Our faith develops and grows and it's strengthened over time. So they're there, the door's locked, Jesus shows up, says, peace be with you, and then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas had said, I need to see and I need to touch, and Jesus says, okay, see touch, believe. Jesus was willing to meet Thomas where Thomas was. He was willing to give Thomas the evidence that Thomas needed 
in order to believe. And Thomas responds and he falls on his face and he says, my Lord and my God, I believe, I believe I have faith in you. And then Jesus looks at him and says, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. That's us. We can't see Jesus. We can't touch him. But we can believe. And we can believe because our faith in him is both reasonable and it's rational. There's no absolute proof that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's quite reasonable and it's quite rational to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And we don't have time this morning to go through all of the arguments as to why it's reasonable, why it's rational to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And in a few minutes, I'm gonna suggest some books that can be helpful to you if you wanna explore. Talk to me and there's other people here who, who you can talk to if you wanna explore that question a little bit further. But, but there's just one question that has been so helpful to me in strengthening my faith that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. See, the, the most reasonable explanation for why Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, probably you think that the disciples stole Jesus' body, hid it somewhere, and faked the resurrection. That's the most reasonable reason to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The problem is Several, actually most of the disciples died for their faith. Lots of times people die for a lie, die for something that they believe is not true, die for a faith that they have that's misplaced. But if the disciples were the ones who stole the body and hid it and perpetrated this fraud, would nine or 10 or 11 of them, all of them die for what they knew to be a lie? Wouldn't one of them have said as they're being tortured, as they're being crucified, as they're being burned at the stake, as they're being cut in half, or whatever it was, whatever way that they were, that they were killed for their faith in Jesus, wouldn't one of them have said, stop, stop, hang on just a second. Okay, uncle, I give in. Here's the body. I'll show you where the body is. Jesus' disciples died because they firmly believed because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Is that absolute irrefutable proof that Jesus had risen from the dead? No, but it's reasonable to believe. It's rational evidence. And so my faith and those of you who share my faith, our faith that Jesus rose from the dead is reasonable. It's rational. It's not faith in spite of the evidence. It's not faith because of the lack of evidence, as Richard Dawkins would say. It's faith that's based on good and reasonable and rational evidence. So if you've got further questions about that, let me know afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about that. So I had this conversation with my friend Brian his freshman year in which he said, I don't know if my faith is my faith or whether it's my parents' faith. I don't know if I really own this faith that I grew up with. And his freshman year, his sophomore year, his junior year, he's asking all these questions over and over again. Same questions several times, new questions, different weeks. He's asking all these questions. And Brian was typical of so many students 
that I ran into. So spring semester of Brian's senior year, we were hanging out, we were talking, we were actually talking about riding our bicycles across the country and what that would be like. And he actually ended up doing that uh, that summer. And we were talking about this and I decided I needed to ask Brian the question that I've been wondering really for the last several years. I thought I knew the answer, but I needed to ask him the question. I looked at him and I said, Brian, do you remember that conversation we had like three and a half, four years ago when you were talking about your faith? And he said, yeah, I remember that. And I said, so where are you today? Do you own your faith? And he said, absolutely, unquestionably. I know now that my faith is my faith, not because my parents told me, not because you told me or somebody else told me, but because I've explored. I've asked the questions, and you and so many other people, let me ask those questions. Let me express my doubts. Let me work through things so that I could come to the point where I believe that my faith is reasonable, that my faith is rational, that God exists, that he came to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he suffered, that he died, that he rose again, and that because I have faith in him, I get to spend eternity with him in a relationship with him forever. And so Brian, because he had the opportunity to explore his faith, came to the point where he said, I absolutely, unquestionably own my faith. Rational faith doesn't have all the answers, but it's not blind faith. It's a faith that involves thinking. It's a faith that's humble enough to admit that God is bigger than we are, and so we'll never know everything about him. And it's a faith that continues to ask questions, continues to explore, continues to learn, and continues to grow. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, Commit to growing in your faith, even if it's just the smallest faith, even if the only faith that you expressed this morning was walking up those stairs because you were a little bit curious about what was going on here at Renaissance, great. Or if you've been a follower of Jesus your entire life and you have a strong faith in God and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your faith is your faith and not somebody else's faith, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, commit to growing in your relationship with God. Ask questions. You got to have some questions. Express your doubts. We all have doubts from time to time. And one of the keys for Brian was working through those questions and working through those doubts. He didn't ignore them. He asked them. He read books. He talked to people. And he explored. And I want to recommend to you three different books that have been really helpful to me in growing in my faith and so many other people that I've talked to have been helpful to them. First one is a book called Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Keller's a pastor in New York City, outstanding book, really deep, really makes you think. And he, answer, he asks and answers several of the questions that we're going to be talking about over these, uh, these next weeks here. And so if you want to supplement what we're talking about, take a look at those. Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel spoke here about a year and a half ago. Packed house. Everybody loved what Lee had to share about his testimony of moving really from atheism and agnosticism 
to faith in Jesus by investigating the evidence. And he chronicles some of that in one of his books called Case for Christ and in another one called The Case for Faith. Those are two great books. Case for Faith really focuses again on the kinds of questions that we're asking these weeks. Case for Christ is an excellent book if you want to understand why do we believe that the Bible is true? Why do we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead and did the things that he said, that the Bible says that he did? So those three books, Reason for God, Case for Faith, Case for Christ, Great way to explore and to grow in your relationship with God. And again, as I mentioned before, if you've got questions, you want to sit, you want to talk, let me know. Grab me afterwards. We'll set up a time to, to, to grab lunch or coffee. Shoot me an email. I love nothing more than spending time with people, exploring their faith and, and dealing with, with some of those questions and those doubts that we have. You know, when Jesus showed Thomas the scars from his crucifixion, Thomas believed in Jesus, but we don't have that same opportunity. Jesus is not standing here showing us the scars from his crucifixion. We don't have the same opportunity that Thomas had to see Jesus and to touch Jesus and to talk directly with Jesus face-to-face in that way, but we can still have a rational faith in him. The apostle John, who was there when Thomas had this interaction with Jesus, witnessed it. And years later, he's reflecting on it, and he wrote it down. He's the one that wrote that account that we have of what happened between Thomas and Jesus. But in the couple of verses right after that encounter, John writes something that I, to me is so encouraging. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He did so many things There's no way, John is saying, that they could have all been recorded in this book. But these, John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I wrote these things down. I wrote them down. I wrote the account of Thomas. I wrote the account of Peter. I wrote all these different things in my biography of Jesus so that you who do not have the opportunity to see Jesus can still have a reasonable, a rational faith in him, that we, 2,000 years later, can still believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he was, that he's done what he's claimed to have done, and that by believing in him, we can be restored to a right relationship with God. So let me encourage you, read the Gospel of John, 21 chapters. won't take that long. Maybe even just read one chapter a, a day, for the next several weeks and just ask yourself, what's going on here? What do I learn about who Jesus is? What do I learn about what it means to have faith in him? Ask questions of the text, reflect on it, chew on it, study it, pray about it, try to understand it, and ask God to help you to grow in your faith in him. Ask him to help you to discover and to grow in your understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. I thank you that we can believe in you. I thank you that we can have faith in you. I thank you that you don't ask us to to throw away our minds when we come to you, but instead you want us to use our minds to understand who you are and that our faith is based on reason, that it's rational. And I thank you that you revealed yourself to us in the Bible. And I pray that as we ask the questions that we have, I pray that as we read the Bible and we 
seek to understand more of who you are and grow in our faith, I pray that we would really grow in our faith. Pray for all of us that we wouldn't be afraid to ask those questions, that we wouldn't be afraid to express those doubts. And I pray that as we do, that you would provide us with answers to our questions, that you'd relieve our doubts and you'd strengthen our faith in you. And I pray that as we do, we would grow in our love for you and as well in our love for the people around us, that we would become more and more and more like you and show your love to the people who are around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out uh, this morning. I hope you have a great week. And come back next week. Pastor A.J. Sherrill from uh, Trinity Grace Church in Chelsea is going to be addressing our next question. Thanks.